Question for you. How do you start an abstract avant-garde classical show out? There are many ways to do it. Uh, one way would be uh, to do it AS style, I guess. And uh, AS style would be throw in a SV cut in there, Baten, the the classic Baten line, and then playing Lily Bollinger after that. 
that's your answer, I think, right? Um, welcome everybody back to another episode of Aesthetic Sound Waves. Um, I am your host, Glass. Sorry, I'm in train of thought here. A lot, a lot of ground to cover, so I'm on a mental timer and how much I say, and uh, I feel like I'm back in live TV again. <laughs> so I'll get. I, I'm reminding myself get back into the slum village thing in a second. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, uh, thank you for tuning in. Much respect uh, to all my tuners from all around the world. Okay, so, first and foremost, of course, shout-outs to, you know, and, and respect to SV Slum. Uh... Obviously, rest in beats, Botin and JD, right? But uh doesn't matter where people go. They're always with us in spirit, right? So uh, shout out T3, big time. But uh, yeah, you know, it's... um I just couldn't start this episode out today without throwing that in there and playing my little mix, I guess, in there. Um, more on that. Slums on later though, so don't worry. I'm uh, we'll get into it a little deeper, but uh, I'm building into today's episode is pretty much based on non stereotypical classical. So, a lot of times we'll turn on the, the radio and we'll tune into the classical station, and we're hearing this nice, fluffy. Uh, relaxing material so we don't crash into the next person in front of us due to our road rage or whatever, right? Well, today I'm going to be playing more avant-garde material that we probably don't hear as so much, at least the most accessible material. Um, but, as like I said, uh, definitely some minimalist material today. I'm I'm playing. Uh, that seems to be the key uh, phrase, avant-garde. I guess you could say too in the next few episodes. So, uh, hey, deal with it, right? <laughs> um, after that slum cut, though, uh, Lily Bullinger, I played uh, the title and excuse my French. I, I, I literally, it's in it, but it's si tu ceci. Nesquen pavre reve. Translated, if all this is no more than a dream, songs by Lily Bollinger and Alma Mahler. That's the album. Good, good vinyl album. If you guys ever get a chance to hear it, um, as I said, you know, uh, just uh, aria piano, uh, eh, an aria piano piece. Uh, really cool stuff. Before I go any further. Obviously, I need to give my most important shout-out and sponsor um, my, for my sponsors, obviously, and that's Dilla's Delights. You guys already know at this point, Dilla's Delights sponsors my show, and I'm very honored and proud of it. Uh, so, that being said, 242 John R. Street. Make sure to, uh, to go see them. Uh, down there, good, great quality donuts, good, good music, just real individuals. Shout out to the whole crew, M much respect. You already know. Um, 
so yeah you know go check them out folks great if you're down here in detroit if you live here wherever um good quality material you can't beat that sometimes quality you you can have quantity or quality personally me i'd rather have quality um so <laughs> that being said i didn't come out with an episode for a bit because i have uh there's a lot going on behind the scenes I'll break more of that later, and there's more going on. But in short, I got to give a shout-out to Dash Radio and Raul especially and the whole crew over there. Thank you so much. Yes, this show is getting syndicated at some point. Um, more on that when the time comes. But big shout-outs to them. Uh, can't Much respect. Much respect. Uh Shoutouts also worldwide. You know, I always do this. Australia, Kenya, Oregon, Nevada, Georgia, Ohio, Texas, and all the supporters around the world and universe, including the uh, aliens on planet Nebatar, tuning in. Thank you. Um, much appreciated. I am only here because of your guys' listens and doing my thing. And uh, it means a lot. It means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Looking at my list. Make sure I didn't stray anywhere. Okay. I need to read some info. Cool stuff. <clears throat> Quite a inspirational person Lloyd Bollinger was. I'm just going to read this straight out of the liner notes. So uh, bear with me. Lily Bollinger, Nadia Bollinger's younger sister, was born in August 1893 and died in March, 18, March 1918. She was seriously ill for most of her short life, but the strength and determination of her spirit managed to overcome her physical weakness and pain Excuse me, um, to produce some of the finest musical works of the early 20th century. In 1913, she became the first woman to attain the premiere Grand Prix de Rome. Those wishing to know more about this remarkable composer and her work should refer to the comprehensive and informative book, The Life and Works of Lily Bollinger by Leone Rosenstyle. Bollinger became acquainted with, with Tristes, a cycle of 24 poems by Francis James through her friend Mickey Pierre. The composer, identified with the cycle's heroine, and in the year after the winning the Prix de Rome, Bollinger began to set a selection of these poems, inspired by the tenor voice of David de Reyes. With the poet's permission, she used the title of the collection with the Tristes appeared, uh, Caris dans le ciel, Clearings in the Sky. She personalized this song cycle in several ways. She regarded the number 13 as a symbol of herself, and the cycle is compromised of 13 sons. Also, the monogram she picked out for the title page intertwined the letters L and B in such a way as to resemble the number 13. End of that paragraph. <clears throat> Close quote. I'll get into that in a second. Here's another sentence I want to read. The despair of the sixth son uh, is underscored by, a, by an accompaniment an accompaniment, accompaniment based mostly on the quotation of a motive form from Wagner's Tristan. 
So, uh, I might as well read you the last part of it. I keep forgetting to. If you're wondering what she was saying, it's actually pretty crazy in that song. If all is no more than a dream. She's saying this. If all is no more than a dream, and if once again in my life, I must add disillusion upon disillusion, and if I must once again in my melancholy distraction seek in the gentle wind and rain the only hollow voices which have impassioned me, I do not know if I shall ever recover. Oh, my friend. That's what she, she was saying in that intro song. Pretty, actually, cool, deep, everything combined. Especially when you consider the fact that, uh, going over my time here, um, can, just the fact that very inventive, and the fact she was, uh, she, she, intelligent, you know, just like everyone else I'm pretty much playing this episode, but, I mean, just creative in their manners that they were, uh, using, you know, I mean, they were really in deep in thought into where they were going, and obviously, she loved the number 13, and I kind of really got a kick out of that when I read that, and, well, gotta, gotta share it, right, gotta share it. So, speaking of creative, very creative, uh, I'm going to move on to the next song. <clears throat> I need my water here. Uh, I'm going to actually be moving on to Chopin. The um, two pieces, actually, two etudes. Um, if you don't know what an etude is, I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. Once I get my other... I'm actually just going to read it straight out of the liner notes again. Any etude is a short piece of instrumental music built around a certain technical problem. Most of the early etudes by men like Kramer and Clementi were addressed primarily to student. Chopin's idea was to compose a set of concert etudes for the professional pianist. Um, the emotional gap is oceans wide between the sixth etude and the seventh. The so-called cello etude, lento C-sharp minor. Also, many, uh, also, any pianist appearing on, on conservatory platform can play this etude with technical accuracy and facility, but the ease with which it can become no more than a piece of moonstruck sentimentality makes it, from the standpoint of the interpretation and emotional restraint, perhaps the most searching test to artistry in this set of etudes. You guys are going to hear exactly what I mean when I get into this. Um, when I play it in a minute. But it is pretty crazy. Um, like Lily Bollinger, Chopin, and I'm going to be reading more info on him in a bit, but Chopin had... Uh, uh, Chopin did his, uh, he took such the simple idea of an etude, obviously, you know, a, a learning lesson, basically, that the teacher would give the student. And he said, you know what, I'm going to make this more complex. So he took a simple idea and added on to it, but blew their minds. I'll get to that later, but I think that's, that's really cool. Um... 
respectful, actually. Really respect. But that being said, next son, ladies and gentlemen, is Chopin, Etude Number no. 7, in C-sharp minor, opus number 25. I'll be back in a minute.
the mood and tone is now set ladies and gentlemen let's jump to the next I'm going to be going to the next one this is etude number 11 in a minor opus 25 we're gonna speed it up just a little more last one was in uh, 3 4 now we're actually uh, going to 4 4 um, so uh, let me read this off to you before I play it in one of Beethoven's greatest movements, the Adagio Sostenuto of the Hammerklavier Sonata, Opus 106, an introductory measure added after the manuscript had gone to the engraver made perfection more perfect. Chopin left us a similar afterthought in the four lento measures that precede the body of the 11th etude, Allegro con brio, a minor 4-4. After this quiet brooding introduction, the keening and the whistling of the winter wind is even more exciting as with the changing harmonies that blast seems to veer to every point of the compass. Let's just jump into this. Next one, number 11.
B-A-D with all capital letters. Um, chopped it up, that's for sure. We all heard that. Uh, I'm just starting. I'm just starting. I've got more where that's coming from. I want to read some notes, though, on this uh, guy a little more, and I'll get to a point. The harmonies simply shocked the more conservative listeners of the day, what with their, as it is considered, outre modulations and harsh, di harsh discords. Formerly, the construction is perfect, not overdeveloped, exactly fit for the nature of the musical substance. Of, of temporary piano composers, he might have known the work of mediocrities like Herze, Hunten, and Kalkbrenner. Several of the older composers like Kramer, Clemente, Sertzene had written etudes or etude-like compositions, but those were relatively primitive with a certain amount of in incipient romanticism to be sure, but largely derived from classical harmonic models. Outside of himself, Chopin's favorite composers were Bach and Mozart. Beethoven he respected, almost feared, but did not fully understand. Schumann and Berlioz he did not like at all. List music on the whole, he scorned. Schubert was probably unknown to him. It was Bach and Mozart also Haydn to a lesser degree that he always, at, he always turned, and they remained his particular deities all his life. The preludes are unique among, among Chopin's works. Many of his most ardent admirers, like Schumann, found them hard to understand. Even Schumann did not know what to make of Chopin's B-flat minor sonata. It was Schumann, remember, who had discovered Chopin, who had followed every phase of his career with interest and appreciation, and who, above all, critics knew precisely what Chopin was doing and what he stood for. Chopin didn't return the compliment. When Schumann received the B-flat minor sonata from publishers for review, he carefully studied it, and his opinions are interesting as an indication of what the music must have meant even to the most advanced musicians of that generation. Today, for an instance, we do not consider Chopin as a composer who wrote in dissonance, but that was the first thing that struck Schumann and presumably all his contemporaries. Only Chopin begins and ends so, with dissonances through dissonances into dissonances. But Schumann continues, how many beautiful beauties this piece too contains. The idea of calling it a sonata is a, is a caprice, if not a jest, for he has simply bond together a few of his wildest children to smuggle them under his name into a place which they could not else have penetrated. Chopin's often wild and arbitrary chords render to the disentanglement of such passages still more difficult. The finale he has given us sounds more like a joke than a piece of music, yet we must confess that even from this joyless, unmelodious movement, an original, a terrible mind brings forth, the preponderance of which annihilates resistance, so that we listen, fascinated, and uncomplaining to the end, but not to praise. For, as I have said before, this is not music. The sonata commences enigmatically and closes with an ironic smile and a finx. Quite a description. Um... For those viewers out there, yours truly, uh, Schumann, uh, he was, he's one of my top three favorite classical composers for various, various reasons. Um, but to hear him say things like that, uh, admired people below him, he's like, whoa, you know, this guy's got talent. This guy's crazy, you know. 
Uh, that says a lot. And I think I could break off into a lot of those things and go off on that more. But I'll leave the opinion more into myself. But uh, I think the other thing that stuck out more than anything else, well, a lot did. But um, <laughs> it's funny. He he respected and feared Beethoven. Um, <laughs> I could throw a lot of scenarios out, but that's uh, that that's that's really interesting to me. Uh, just really interesting. Of course, his favorites were Bach and Mozart. Just um, it's funny, man. People influence each other in some way, and then uh, are are influenced by others. I don't know, man. We're we're crazy people, are. but um, I guess back to point is that uh, he, I mean, he was respected, really respected, and uh, to the point his superiors were like, who's this guy? They couldn't smash him, but they couldn't understand him either. So he had his own style, and uh, it made him stand out, and he did his thing. So, yeah, that's my, uh, that's my uh, Chopin info. Let's, uh, I'm gonna turn the notch up a lot more now. Probably like 10 times more on this one. Let's break off into Paganini. Who? Right? Most people, who? <laughs> um, I'm gonna be playing Paganini, uh, his Caprice number seven in A minor, uh, from the 24 Caprices. Um, I guess I'm just going to get straight into this now. But uh, if if Schumann chopped it up for you, then I sent Paganini in to destroy you. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'll be back in a minute.
you realize what just happened, right? Paganini chewed you up and spit you out. That's in essence what this dude just did. <laughs> um, he was nuts. Actually, literally nuts. Um, thanks to mercury poisoning back in the day. You can look that one up. I already got enough info I got to spit out to you guys speaking of, right? Um, so my side, my personal thoughts and then the side notes to keep on track with the timing here. Um, he was basically, in essence, he was like the Jimi Hendrix of the classical world. Uh, just, you know, talented, you know. He could play the violin like nothing as you uh, heard, right? So there was a lot of... There was a lot, a lot of rumors, myths, a very private man. Um, I mean, you look up the info on this guy, it's pretty crazy uh, to, uh, to, to read about it and or hear certain things. Um, one of the things is that he was uh, the most common knowledge. He's kind of like Robert Johnson also, the th since that a lot of people looked at him uh, that he sold his soul to the devil, so basically um, to uh, to play the violin fact, uh, the violin faster. Excuse me, but a lot of myths surround this dude. Um, like the previous I just mentioned, sold his soul, uh, cut the webbing. This was actually the first thing I remember uh, hearing about Paganini. But cut the webbing between his fingers to play faster. That was one of those, and then uh, worship Pan. Of course, Satan worshipper to us more, but he was uh, very much considered to be the anti of an anti, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, those are things that a lot of people grow up hearing uh, about this dude. And then you look some stuff up and whatnot. But this info I'm about to pull out right now, I want to get this part done first. But it actually comes off of, uh, you know what? Well, I'm going to read that first and I'll say something. But it comes off www.classicalfm.com, right? Title of the article is Nicola Paganini was such a gifted violinist, people thought he sold his soul to the devil. Yes, that is the title. But um, the author of it is by Maddie Shaw Roberts, okay? Um, I'm going to say this. This is actually a good site. If you want to, if you guys want to uh, go look and find out a lot of legit sources of classical music rather than Wikipedia that, uh, uh, the material. This is legit stuff, and it's really, really good site. Tons of info, good material. I highly suggest it. Um, so, yeah. Oh, one thing I'm going to say about the... Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in my own mode right now. About the 24 Caprices is if you haven't heard that full... Piece um, that was kind of like, uh, kind of like the Beatles' Abbey Road album, right? It's just a classic, and especially in the classical world, you bring up that people are like, yeah, yeah, you know, they know. <laughs> so good look up. I'm sure you thoroughly enjoy it if you already enjoyed that one, uh, that one caprice right there. Back to Paganini info. He was born. On October 27th, whoa, wait, what do you know? That wasn't, that was just 
like a few days ago. Um, but he was born October 27th, 1782 in Genoa, Italy as Nicola Paganini. Started playing mandolin at age five, then at seven started playing violin. First public performance was at 11, and I'm reading this off my shorthand. And then 15, he started playing solo tours. Um, played without sheet music publicly. He would memorize everything. He was kind of like on that Mozart mode. Like, Mozart didn't have to... Uh, <laughs> Mozart could hear something once or twice, and boom, it was ingrained in his head, right? Um... But, uh, sorry, thinking here. Back to notes. Would mistune his strings for various pieces. So, you know, he would definitely go off tune. That's for sure. No pun intended. Um, had lawn fingers. This is the interesting part. Uh, this attributes to some extent a lot of the myths that I read, right? Like he cut the webbing between his fingers. And uh, so, basically, it's believed, and in, in the, there is an actual photo uh, of his, uh, or an actual drawn thing, I th believe, of his hand. But he did actually have lawn fingers, and that was due to a syndrome called Marfan syndrome. Uh, but the speed factor also was given to the fact that he also had Ehlers. Danlos syndrome. It's a disorder that causes uh, that causes flexibility and uh, uh, lack of coordination. So I guess you put those two together, it makes a good violinist, right? I'm not sure. Either way, um, that kind of plays into the myth more rather than the fact that the guy was crazy enough to, you know, take out uh, the most important part of like our body, I guess, or our hands. That, that would hurt. Back to point. He died May 27th of 1840 in France. It didn't help that he turned away the priest, um, a priest offering on his last rites before he died. So that just escalated the myth more that he was a saint worshiper, all that good stuff. Um, and to the point, to the point that the Catholic Church they wouldn't bury him for four years after he died. His body traveled around Europe in different morgues and places until the church family said, yeah, yeah, it's cool, it's cool, we'll bury you now. You're, you're cool with us. Um, one little side note, too. One of the things that a lot of people looked at him the way they did is because the violin back in the day was considered to be the devil's instrument. I guess we can go back to the Charlie Daniels son, right? <laughs> but... Um, so, yeah, as I said, a lot of myths, a lot of little crazy uh, notes and things with this dude. Um, anyway, regardless of, I guess, what he did uh, or what he had, dude could kill it. Kill it. So, yeah, there you go. If that's your first time hearing Paganini, I know I got you hooked on it. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'm looking at my time, and, and uh, I have exceeded the limits of my of the first part. So, sort of like a uh, cassette tape deck. When you hear the static sound, please immediately play part two of two of this show.
and uh, you're gonna see, uh, you're gonna hear some more good uh, avant-garde classical music on this one. So when you hear the sound of the static, please flip over to side two or part two of AS. You got it.